HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We are broadcasting from the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street, where brunch is being served. Today's program is featuring on the phone none other than Jason Hirsch. Jason Hirsch is the food editor for the Associated Press. He oversees writers covering everything from breaking news to restaurant and retail trends, as well as a team of chefs developing recipes for use in hundreds of newspapers around the nation. He has written two cookbooks, including High-Flavored Low Labor, Reinventing Weeknight Cooking. He tweets at J.M. Hirsch and blogs at lunchboxblues.com. Jason, welcome. I mean, you are arguably the Mac Daddy of all food editors, am I right? <laughs> well, I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. But, <laughs> but I don't uh, mind saying I do saying consider myself it. lucky enough to have a fantastic job in the food world where I get to have a lot of influence on the food news and recipes and so forth that people read in newspapers across the country. It's a responsibility I take very seriously, and but it's also a lot of fun because... You know, my job is to spot trends and spot news and and listen as well and hear what people want to know more about and what people are cooking in home kitchens as well as restaurant kitchens. So it's, it's a great job. I love it's it. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm deeply envious. Um, so let me get yeah. right down to business. How do you pick your stories? I mean, you must be inundated. I know AP has hundreds and hundreds of reporters. How do you pick the stories that you think are the most worthy to go out on the wire? Well, you know, I mean, the first thing is you can never do them all. You know, as as any journalist knows, there's never enough time, energy, uh, workers, (laughs) just anything to do all the stories that truly merit uh, reporting and writing. But, you know, I mean, there's a couple of factors involved. Obviously, breaking news is one of them, and, you know, which we, we recently saw with, the, the kind of uprising, if you will, uh, in terms of pink slime. You know, this is news that, that broke, and the AP responded to it, and, and we covered it extensively, and, and we get the stories out very quickly. Uh, so that, that's obviously one 
one part of it. The other part is is watching for trends. You know, I try to keep an eye out and I listen to my writers as well. You know, what are what are people doing? What are people reading? What are people talking about in terms of food and what they're eating, what they're cooking, you know, where they're going out to eat and and what's going on in food politics and what are you know, what are our politicians talking about? What's on the agenda? And we're always, of course, trying to stay one step ahead of the news and, and kind of anticipate what's coming down the pike so that we can tell people. And then, of course, there's the, in, the other part of the job, which is, you know, recipes and, and cooking news, um, where, you know, we try to anticipate what people want to be feeding their families. And we generate a lot of recipe content. I think what a lot of people don't realize is my job is actually two jobs. And which is one, I, I edit news and um, trend stories and business stories for AP. But the other part of the job is the test kitchen, running the test kitchen, where we develop a lot of the recipes that Americans see in their food section of their local newspaper. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that's got it. That's a full time job right there. So I'm guessing you're working like 24 hours a day. I should be really lucky that you came on the show today, right? It often feels that way. <laughs> I can imagine. Plus, you have um, but, kids. You know, I, I have a great team that that lets me do what I do, mm-hmm. and you know, I have chefs who work for me in terms of developing recipes. I do I do some developments, but not nearly as much as I used to. I can imagine. And, um, but you know, they they're great. They they really the test kitchen runs itself, and and they do a great job with that. I also have you know a tremendous number of writers, as you say, across the AP, and, and as well as freelancers. Um, who do a great job uh, of, you know, seeking out the news and and reporting it. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys, your stories are picked up all over the country and all basically every newspaper, especially as newspapers have folded or reduced their food sections. Um, I imagine AP is selling a lot more stories because of that. Do you see a big difference between the kinds of stories that are picked up in newspapers on the coasts versus the ones that, say, run in the South or run in the Midwest? Like, where are the interests, uh, you know, Besides the coast, like, is everybody else focusing on food politics the way we are or sustainability the way we do? Or do you find that there is pretty much the same interest across the board? You know, that is the information I would love to have. Um, technologically <laughs> speaking, <laughs> technologically speaking, we haven't quite, we're not quite there yet. Uh, because the way the AP service works is we generate vast, vast volumes of content across the board, you know, from politics coverage to local Mm -hmm. government to food and environment and so forth. And and we send it out over what we call the wire and to our subscribers, our members, uh, every day, all day. And our members and subscribers pick and choose what they wish to use. They don't report back to us in terms of what they use. And, you know, it's kind of it's an a la carte situation in many ways where they, they are presented with all of our stories and all of our content, and then they choose what makes sense for them to use for their readers. So I don't actually have a really good handle on what Des Moines is using versus, you know, uh, Florida or whatever. But I can tell you that, in general, lo- you know, food editors at, at newspapers across the country, really, they want information, whether it's a news story or whether it's a recipe, they want information that busy families can use at the end of the day. So whether that's a story about pink slime that explains to a consumer what do you need to know next time you go grocery shopping and, and why is it important that you know this, or if it's a recipe that they can get on the table at the end of the workday, that seems to be the common thread, that local food editors want information, stories, recipes, news that their readers can use. 
And I think that's, that's something a little bit different than what you find in elsewhere in the newspapers, where the goal is purely to inform in many cases. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need to know what's going on in the Middle East, and we need to know what's going on overseas. But in the case of the food pages, a lot of it is news to use. And so they really want information that their readers can pick up and, and put into use in their lives. I understand. Um, so speaking to that, you recently, I saw a series of articles about your food stamp challenge, otherwise known as SNAP benefits. And um, in that particular challenge, you, you you got two chefs, including Bill Telepan, who we know well, and who's a chef here in New York, and uh, mm-hmm. and a food editor and another chef uh, to try to make ends meet on $68.27 per week for a family of four. So what, what made you choose to do that? And, you know, what did you think would, what did you think people would learn from seeing that? Well, I mean, you know, the, we're very lucky in the sense that for, for most of us, or I, and maybe I shouldn't even say most, but for many of us, an exercise like this is a choice mm-hmm. that we can wonder what is it like to live on $68 and, and so many cents a week in terms of food, uh, that's a luxury, to be able to wonder that. It's a luxury to be able to say, well, let's find out. For far too many Americans, it's a reality, and there is no choice in it. It's no luxury, and, and it's extremely difficult. And part of one of the things we hear over and over again in, in the food world is that it is possible to eat very well without, you know, blowing the budget. Yeah. And... Uh, oftentimes there is a, a knowledge gap in terms, because those of us, in kind of a sick irony, those of us who best know how to make a food dollar stretch are the people who least need to do it. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, chefs are, are, you know, especially restaurant chefs, are pros at stretching a food dollar because it affects their bottom line. Of course. And, and so they know how to buy the proper cuts of meat that they can get at the best price and do the most with, you know, and, and, and so forth. And, and so they have that knowledge. The, the average family, whether they're on food stamps or not, doesn't have that knowledge. And, and so it's a real challenge to then say to these people, all right, well, you have less money than most. You need to stretch it more than most. And so I wanted to see, well, let's, let's take that expertise. Let's, let's talk to these folks who really, you know, understand the idea of stretching a food dollar and see what they can do with, with you know, the average amount that a family of, I think it was a family of four gets yes. um, for a week in the United States on food stamps. And, you know, they did a great job. And, and again, they brought to the table an understanding of the economics of, of food shopping. And I think part of what, you know, we need if we, you know, in, in terms of uh, helping folks on, who are trying to make do on food stamps is to kind of share some of that knowledge. And so I was curious, well, what will, what will these folks bring to the table? And, it, you know, it was nothing, you know, it wasn't rocket science. But it was taking the time to really think consciously about the food choices they were making, yeah. what they were going to do with that food, and how were they going to maximize each item that they bought. I actually and, thought and, that know, what they, they did was, was too complicated and expensive. And had I been given that challenge? <laughs> <laughs> I, seriously, I mean, nobody did rice and beans. 
Nobody did a big soup with like a shank of beef, which creates, you know, an incredible amount of flavor, but, you know, relatively mm-hmm. little expenditure. I mean, I was surprised. I thought the food was too were, fancy. I, you know, I think there were a few. There, I, I want to say one of them did. It's been a while since I looked at that, sir, but I, I want to say one of them did uh, like a chicken soup. I think they did a, a roasted chicken and then they turned some of the leftovers yeah. into soup. Um, and, but you're right. You know, they, of course, they're also coming at it from a restaurant perspective. So while you have the benefit of their deeper understanding of food economics, you also have their tendency to go higher end than, uh, and perhaps more labor intensive. Yeah, Telepan went the, over budget 20 bucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't an option for us. For most yeah, exactly. Of us, yeah. Um, and, and that was, that again, is the luxury of, of doing it theoretically. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm forever thankful that I have that luxury. But uh, sure. for a lot of Americans, it's not. So it was, it was really an interesting experience to see what they would come up with. And you're right. I mean, I think this is one of those equations that there's many ways to get at the answer. And, um, you know, they chose probably more labor-intensive ways than the average American family can handle. And, and you know, I certainly don't have the sort of time to, well, yeah, to do they were some positing, of the that they were talking about. They had people cooking basically almost every night. I think there was only one or two nights where you had something that you could eat twice. Um, Jason, I want to say one more thing. We have to take a break in just a second, but I want to say one more thing about this. I mean, you touched on this a few minutes ago, but um, it seems to me that the main thing about making SNAP benefits work or for anybody who wants to cook well uh, and eat well at home is is a culinary education or a culinary literacy, as my my guest last week put it, which I thought was a really great way of putting it. And I wondered, you know, what 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 do you think is the answer to creating that kind of education or, you know, offering that kind of basic, um, you know, essential knowledge about how to make rice and beans or a basic soup or something like that to families that don't have that expertise and may not even have that much access to um, cooking equipment? Well, you know what's interesting is that you, in some ways, you answered your own question because there was a time when everything you just described wasn't just common knowledge; it was basic knowledge yeah. to the to every American family. And we, in in part, in in the way that we've glorified food culture at this point, we've kind of separated ourselves from it in many ways, mm-hmm. and we think of this culinary uh, education or or in information as being you know, professional chefs, that you, you have to go to culinary school, which is absolutely untrue. Mm-hmm. And it's more of a sense of getting back in the kitchen and cooking, because, you know, what you say is that they had people cooking every night. Well, yes, actually, people should be cooking every night. And it doesn't mean it, it's necessarily practical for everybody. And, and will everybody do it every night? Of course not, and they probably maybe even shouldn't. But once people get back in the kitchen and start cooking, those basic skills will be learned, will come back. I mean, obviously, there are many sources for that information these days, be it online or in books and so forth. Um, but it's the act of cooking. You know, we need to go back to the act of cooking, and that's where that basic information comes from, so that you do know that if you buy a four-pound whole chicken, it's a better value because you can make two, three meals out of it and, you know, two different things. And it's a better bargain than buying just the chicken breasts or, or you know, like that. Right. Um, so, but you don't you don't get that information by going up to dinner every night or getting no, takeouts. You get not. that information by shopping and then coming home and cooking what you bought. Right. Absolutely, Jason. Stay on the line. We have to take a thirty second sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Jason Hirsch from the AP. Mm-hmm. 
first ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. We are back on Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, my guest is Jason Hirsch, the food editor for the Associated Press. Jason, how did you like that commercial? That was the one and only Brian Kenny, the farm manager for um, Hearst, <laughs> Hearst Ranch. Wasn't that inspiring? Indeed. He's a great guy. He calls himself a spreadsheet cowboy, but he is so much more than that. He's just an amazing dude. Anyway... <laughs> Um, I wanted to um, walk into sort of the national aspect of um, of food culture and and food pol- and talk a little bit about food politics because, as you know, probably better than any of us, you know, there is this great groundswell of emotion and and movement about changing our food systems, and I I have to say that in general I don't see a lot of food politics appearing in food sections, certainly not in my own in the New York Times. Um, if something really big happens, I guess they cover it, but I have to say that there has been a paucity of coverage of say the farm bill, um, of say. Uh, subsidies um, of, uh, you know, issues around, say, for instance, um, obesogens. I mean, that was something that came up in the news a couple weeks ago. I noticed an article, I think it was in the Atlantic about, you know, the holy trinity of fat, sugar and salt, um, actually triggering a certain response in the brain that encourages you to eat more junk food. I don't see a lot of that stuff in food. I also don't see, I mean, aside from the pink slime story, I don't see a lot of interest in commercial food production per se. Do you think people are not interested in that? Or are your advertisers not interested in having you cover that? Or how how do, how do you think that plays out? Well, I don't know about advertisers. They have nothing to do with what I decide to cover or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I will tell you, I I actually have had the opposite response to what's been going on in media and in particular food media. You know, I have been watching food media or part of the food media for many years now. And had you asked me 10 years ago, would, you know, stories about school lunches and, mm-hmm. and, and slime and, and would Jamie Oliver have a show about reforming school lunch on, you know, on ABC in prime time? I never would have believed you. Yeah. You know, would, would the vegan, you know, vegan and, and eco-sensitive diet, you know, to, for lack of a better term, um, be nearly as, I'm not going to call them mainstream, but boy, they're a lot closer to the mainstream than they were 10, 15 years oh, ago. absolutely. Um, I have been shocked at the response and, and heartened by the response of the American uh, consumer in terms of, of a desire to know more about food. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, look at the success of some of the movies that have come out, um, you know, from Super Size Me to Food, Inc., and, and sure. so forth. Um, I have been really, really shocked by the, the level and extent of interest and knowledge that people want and have of food, food culture, uh, food politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you just look at the New York Times food section, which I'm, I will neither praise nor, nor beat mm-hmm. up, but, you know... Th- that is one small slice of food media yeah. at the moment. When you get online and you realize that there are thousands and thousands of blogs following and chronicling every little step of 
you know, of the farm bill, for example, oh, yeah. and the school lunch reform effort and, and so forth. And some of those blogs were instrumental in, for example, exposing pink slime and turning it into, you know, a, what, it, what it became. Um, I'm amazed, fascinated, and so impressed that people are so interested in food today that it has become... Uh, an, an online entity unto itself. I mean, you know, people talk about mommy blogs, people talk about mm-hmm. food blogs. And, and it becomes such a component of our awareness of what we're putting in our bodies. You know, look at it this way. Fifteen years ago, if you had said that Walmart was going to start selling organic, yeah, really? and, and, not just the, and not just a little, you yeah. know, they went whole hog into organic. Um, or even the pink slime story I've when never, Burger King and, and uh, McDonald's dropped pink slime. That was national news, exactly. and that was—I'm sure that was on the on the heels of consumer uh, outrage. Exactly, like and you know what? And, and companies are responding to to consumer demand for, to know more about what's in their food. Are we still a processed food society? Yes, absolutely. Is that a good thing? You know, I'll, I'll leave that to others to debate, but. People are demanding to know more about their food, what they're putting in their bodies, and what they choose to do with that information is a separate matter. But they are demanding to know more about food and, and how it affects the rest of their lives. And, and I think that's fantastic. I mean, I think more information is always better. You know what? I'm just thinking about that and, and thinking that, you know, a lot of that information is in the blogosphere, as you say, and that therefore would be dependent on owning a computer and, and having computer skills sufficient to allow you to track those. So, you know what, what makes me, what I think about this right now is like, is there going to be a sort of division in the country where there's half of the country or the, you know, the same people who are, have the luxury of not using food stamps who are able to control what they put in their bodies versus the people who don't get that information and who continue to support, um, you know, unwittingly, but still support, uh, you know, sort of the big processed food manufacturers. I, I feel there's a real danger in that um, kind of uh, split in the food system here. I, what about well, you? I think, you know, across the board in, in, in not just our country, but in many developed countries, there is definitely an information and, and perhaps you can even say internet divide, mm-hmm. culturally speaking. You know, people who have access to the information, people who have access to the internet, and oftentimes those go hand in hand. And, you know, that is a bigger problem than just the food world. Does it also affect mm-hmm. the food world? Absolutely. You know, and, and that's what we're talking about, which is the, the idea that the people who most need those food economy skills generally least have, you know, have the least of them. Yes. And, and that's something that, you know, that a lot of people are trying to remedy, not just in the food world, but they're trying to remedy it across the board in this kind of information divide and get the information to the people who need it. And, you know, so I don't know that that's necessarily a food solution. I think there are plenty of uh, people who are trying to do something about that. I mean, you see this effort um, led by, the, you know, Michelle Obama to get chefs into their local schools to teach the teach children about food and what it means to grow food and produce right. it and get it into your body and what healthy eating means. I mean, I think that's a great example where you know if we put chefs in the school, you know, you've now bridged that information uh, divide. And I think that's just one of many examples of what's going on. Well, I think chefs in the school is great. I think chefs in the school is great. But I think that a lack of like basic hands-on instruction um, in the form of a home ec class or something like that is what's really 
needed here. I mean, you know, they've been right. having kids. Kids have been seeing chefs in their schools. I mean, my daughter went through public uh, elementary school education here in New York, and and she saw some great chefs come in and prepare a salad for them, and it was like, yeah, big deal. You know, I mean, and they had a garden there mm-hmm. and the whole bit. And my, you know, my kid is lucky; she grew up with a good cook. But uh, you know, most of the kids in her <laughs> class, eh, you know. They kept on eating their Doritos. So, what about something oh, like uh... you know? I mean, <laughs> kids. That, you know, it, it's absolutely true. You know, we, there's plenty. I think there's still plenty of room for progress. I think um, you know this is you know one step of many that is that the are being but that need to be taken. And you know, I think um, the idea is to, to kind of plant those seeds that hopefully children mm-hmm. will grow up and and have a respect for food. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to change overnight. We didn't um, become dependent on processed food and um, and kind of lose touch with cooking skills overnight. It's not going to be remedied overnight. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel that we did almost. I feel like the post-war generation, you know, like in the 50s when um, when women started, you know, were leaving the, work, were the home more and more for the workplace and then TV dinners came into play and it was like, I remember saying to my parents like, oh my God, can't we please have TV dinner for dinner? My mom was an amazing <laughs> cook. You know, I was begging for that processed food. I thought it was really cool that it came in a tray with little slots, blah, blah, blah. Oh, sure. You know, so I I think it was really, I mean, granted, it was, um, you know, like 50 years ago, because of course, I'm 56. But you know, it was, it was 20, I think it was really about 15 or 20 years of, you know, of commercial food production being pushed at you as a convenience as more and more women entered the workplace. And that was when cooking just went right out the window. And you know, Absolutely, it, but you know, I think it took several decades before we truly, too. you know, before yeah. processed food, you know, became the norm the, as opposed the, to the exception. Exactly, and and now, I mean, you look at families today, and they are cooking so much more today than they were ten, fifteen years ago. That is for sure. They know so much more about food than they did ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. I mean, it's definitely where I, I feel like you know we we've kind of dipped, and now we're coming back up. Mm-hmm. And and again, the first part of the equation is wanting to know. Yeah. And all of the evidence I see, even if people are still reaching for their you know their Doritos or, or their fast food or whatever, the first step is people wanting to know. And all signs I see point in the direction that people want to know more about their food. What they do with that information is a completely separate issue. I think the first point is to is to see that they want the information and and that it's being given to them. And like I say, more than ever before, there are more sources to get that information and so that people can be informed about food. And, and I mean everything from understanding the farm bill and to school lunch reform to knowing how to cook and roast a chicken. Yeah. And, you know, that. That's as basic and you know, and as important as understanding how farm bill policy affects you know your school lunch and and what you can buy at your grocery store and and organic you know certification standards and so forth. I mean that's it's just as important. And people, again, if you look, you know, one of the, I get the the stats from Yahoo on search engine um, on on food stats, and one of the things that they they say every week is. People want to know about how to, you know, how to cook chicken, how to roast a chicken, how to do chicken breakfast. People want to know. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's kind of that first step. And I think it's fantastic. People seem to want to know much more than they did 
you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, we have to wrap it up now, Jason, but uh, I can say, uh, I think without hesitation and with no, um, with no, uh, shall we say, false praise here, that you've probably had a lot to do with that revolution in terms of people <sighs> seeking that information. I mean, you've been the food editor at AP for quite a while now. So, um, you know, you certainly are in the forefront of deciding what people read and getting the information to them. So um, I'm, I was going to ask you about Lunchbox Blues, but I don't have time. But I will encourage people to go to your website, which is www.lunchboxblues.com, which is a very funny and entertaining blog about what you feed your son. <laughs> I really got a I'm kick out of it. Someday he thinks it's entertaining too. Yeah, well, <laughs> I love the idea of the what was it, peanut butter and pretzel sandwich. <laughs> Good that for him. Idea. Yeah, <laughs> rock on, Parker. Anyway, thank you so much for doing this with me, Jason. I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll come back another time. I thought this was a really fun Absolutely. discussion, and I can imagine having Absolutely. many more of the same. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, and thanks to my sponsor, Hearst Ranch, for joining me today on Straight No Chaser. And we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks a lot for tuning in. All the best. Oh.